And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Well, good Sunday afternoon. Welcome to Connecting the Dots. Uh, yeah, I just realized that, Thumper. I uh, I looked over, and lo and behold, I was unmuted. Usually I uh, have myself muted. We're having a little trouble getting Jim Beers on. Uh, he's having some problems with his computer with the Zoom account, uh, and I'm going to send you a phone number if you wouldn't mind trying to help talk him into or talk him through the process and get him online. Uh, but we do have Nathan Dashmaker with us today, and uh, Nathan uh, is going to talk to us a little bit about some of the programs that he's been trying to deal with, and he's having a lot of problems uh, in dealing with some of the some of the uh, administrative agencies that he's dealing with in the state of Montana. There's Jim. Uh, Jim's on now. Good. We don't even have to worry about it. Jim, you look great. <laughs> anyway, uh, Nathan has been dealing with some things, and we had a great conversation yesterday because I told Nathan, I said, I knew that was going to happen because uh, until you start really making waves, they allow you to think that everything's just fine and you're making great headway. And the second you start really getting some traction, uh, they start throwing sand in the gears and trying to do anything they can to shut you up. And I wanted Jim and Nathan to get a chance to meet each other because uh, Jim saw this happen in the biggest of ways because he was a congressional fellow. He was working with Congress uh, through the uh, Fish and Wildlife agencies and talking about uh, what was going on with the wolf introductions and the fur trapping and all this stuff. And when he started making a little bit too much noise, when he, uh, let's say, turned state's evidence on the Pittman-Robertson Fund becoming uh, a wolf slush fund to introduce wolves from Canada to the United States rather than being used for the fishing and hunting that it was originally intended for, boy, did they go after him in a big way. Anyway, this is going to be a good discussion because 
people need to understand our federal agencies are being federalized against the American people. We're seeing it now with the hearings in Congress on the uh, weaponization of federal agencies, and we're going to see a lot more of that in the future. So, um, Nathan, uh, Jim, welcome to the program. Nathan, uh, I know you've got a little bit of a restriction because you've got a lot going on right now. You've got a lot of things you're working on. But uh, I really wanted you to come on the air and talk a little bit about what you're starting to experience at the state level. And, and then Jim can tell you some of his experiences at the federal level. Nathan, go yeah. ahead. Okay, good. Yep. You hear me fine on your end? Yep. You're coming in loud and clear. Good deal. Uh, yeah. So appreciate again, Dan, coming on. I'll should be able to stay on for a good portion of the program, anyways. And uh, an honor to come on with with Mr. Beers as well. Um, so yeah, like uh, Dan said, and some been on the program several times before discussing just issues in the administrative state on the federal side of things and the state side of things as well. And the problem on the federal and the state side, I guess, is the bureaucracy has grown to a point that, you know, as a citizen, when you start serving in government, uh, at whatever capacity and you have statutory authority to accomplish things on behalf of your tax paying constituency. Um, it's amazing how the bureaucratic structure in place starts to be leveraged against your ability to uphold your oath of office and serve your constituents on the ground in many ways. And that happens at the federal level. It happens at the state level. You know, and that can even happen at a state level, like in Montana, we have pretty, you know, Republican dominated state last election, virtually every seat that was open went, went into a Republican seat. Um, and there's a lot of good things happening in Montana, uh, as a result of that and some pretty good leadership in many respects, but, um, leaders are only as good as their advisors. And oftentimes strong conservative leaders come into uh, positions in state or local government. And some of that advisory capacity to them comes from the existing bureaucracy, whether that's Department of Natural Resources and Conservation, Department of Environmental Quality, the U.S. Fish, or not U.S., but State Fish and Wildlife Service, or the federal agencies and departments as well. Um, so it can be very difficult for... Uh, leadership at the state or federal level and we saw this under the trump administration how much of that bureaucracy was leveraged against uh, him accomplishing much of his objectives uh, by undoing some of the out of control things on land use and 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 whatnot so so i've been serving at the state level in montana and in, in many respects serve at the local level in the conservation district but also work with a lot of counties and and serve on the Montana Grass Conservation Commission. And we have statutory authority to oversee the state grazing districts in the state and some advisory capacity for those counties. And we also have quasi juris, uh, judicial and quasi legislative powers. Um, and it's a board, the Grass Commission's a board that's kind of not exercised all of those authorities over time. 
So when you start trying to bring those authorities forward, it sometimes <laughs> not just with the bureaucratic system in place, you face some resistance, but um, when you start exercising dormant powers, um, some people get uncomfortable, uh, sadly, um, but it's needed in where we are in our country. We need uh, more people at the different aggregates of government to uphold our oath of office, utilize the statutory powers that we have um, to actually represent the people on the ground. Um, so I don't know if that, that was a good intro of what you wanted me to go through on that front, Dan, but that's, that's a starter anyways. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point to start because you and I were kind of commiserating um, some of the things that you're running into and, it kind of lit my fire yesterday because as a county commissioner, uh, I had found out that everything is great. You know, if they think you're going to be compliant with all of the programs they're already doing, but the second they find out that you might be uh, somebody who's going to rock the boat a little bit and you're going to try to do things like coordination and some of the other things that I tried, uh, I attempted to get, in place in Montana as a county commissioner, I found out my worst enemy was MACO, the Montana Association of Counties. And uh, it wasn't the whole association, it wasn't the counties, it was the leadership, it was the hierarchy. And in the second you started representing a threat to them uh, being on the government teat and being able to get every federal program they could possibly gin up to get uh, the county commissioners to stick their head in the trough. The second you started fighting that and you started identifying what your role was in protecting your citizens, you become an enemy of the group that you're supposed to be representing. And uh, that's kind of a sad statement, but I want to introduce, I know you've met Jim before, but uh, Jim is somebody who you really need to uh, put in your catalog file as somebody who is a really, really good expert to bring in for advice, because Jim's seen this at the highest federal level and uh, Jim, maybe tell our listeners, I know some of them have heard this story before, but you were involved internationally with the fur uh, trade because of so many of the, the uh, anti-fur groups were trying to shut down trapping worldwide. You got involved with Russians and different people from other countries and went to some international uh, programs and kind of establish some relationships. And in the process, you find out, found out a whole lot about wolves. And when the US government started taking Pittman-Robertson funds and funneling them away from the, um, let's say the uh, 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 advancement of hunting and and fishing programs for the sportsmen and started putting them into uh, bringing a bunch of damn gray wolves out of Canada and putting them in Yellowstone Park. When you blew the whistle on that, boy, they went after you in a big way. I want you to tell the story. I, I'm leading into that, but I want you to tell that story. I think Nathan uh, might uh, get, get a little bit of energy out of that. 
You're going to have to unmute yourself, Jim. You're muted right now. How's that? Is that better? Yeah, good. You're okay, on. Good. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Uh, I hope this helps a little bit, but back in the 90s, early 90s, there was already a big move afoot by, by newly hired and appropriated, or not appropriated, but appointed people in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I might add in the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, people under EEO programs that had gotten their jobs that had lost requirements for the jobs. But all of those people came into the jobs that they were given, no, already knowing because they had been briefed by the NGOs that really sent them in there under the uh, aegis of equal employment. They already knew they would talk about things like, oh, I hunt and fish and I support all that. Yeah, that's good, blah, 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 blah. But in the meantime, they were, they were undermining the way the money flowed, who was getting what, and who was getting what responsibilities for the new job. And for about six to seven years, under Clinton, nobody really saw what was going on, especially people outside the agency, except for the NGOs. And by the time it dawned on everybody what was going on, it was really getting to be too late. So what they did when they came in was they asked, were asking Congress, when the Democrats first got elected into Congress at that time, in a long time, or excuse me, the Republicans did, Newt Gingrich and the, the Congress all decided that they would not fund, they would not authorize any introduction of wolves into the upper Rocky Mountain states because they knew there was a lot of opposition to it. They also knew that it was going to create problems with elk and with cattle and sheep and that, but they knew that that really didn't bother them too much. So what they did was, in my case, I was working probably a majority of my time going back and forth to Europe with, and I was working with Canadians and Russians, the other two big fur sellers in the world, along with the European Union, but the European Union was already gone, as far as what I'm going to tell you. Their, their elected leaders in the European Union, some of them had, had their kids sent off to uh, schools on uh, scholarships paid for by those people. Some had taken support, which means money, and... Uh, votes if you needed them to stay in, in power to take the trapping issue and try to break trapping and the fur industry down. So those two things were going on. And as I was trying to work to avo avoid that, working with the State Department and the U.S. Trade Representative's office, I was a traveling wildlife guy. So we were being successful by using a lot of open knowledge that everybody recognized not to close down the fur industry, nor trapping, which they wanted to do because of what's going on you see today. They want to get rid of hunting. They want to get rid of logging. They want to get rid of grazing, leases, and all of that. But anyway, this was all aimed at, at uh, fur and trapping, and the Canadians and the, and the Russians understood it. I understood it, but all of the people I worked with in the United States, just as you, as you can imagine, would have been Oh, that's icky. People shouldn't wear furs, you know, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, I'm over there working on that while here, getting back to, to what's his name, uh, Newt Gingrich, Congress should be refused, refused to authorize or fund wolves coming into the Northern Rockies. 
which they were trying to do, thinking that that Clinton Clinton would would do what what they said they weren't going to do, the, the Congress and that, which is get wolves introduced in there because the the Republicans and the Democrats at that time were very supported by the people that wanted to do that. So the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, unbeknownst to anybody then, I was traveling back and forth and did not know it. They diverted two years worth of most of the funding, the excise taxes that are collected for arm, from arms and ammunition that could only be used by state fish and wildlife agencies. Well, excuse me, I got a bunch of geese in the back air raising. Okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, but anyway, I did not know that they were using that money to secretly, I mean, secretly, like they were going to go into the Ukraine or something, where they sent Fish and Wildlife Service endangered species people up into northern Canada, working quietly with, without publicity understood by the Canadian Wildlife Service to trap wolves from northern Alberta and Saskatchewan, somewhere up there. I say somewhere because they never really fully revealed where they got them all, but they trapped them, brought them down, took them across the border into, into Montana and North Dakota and transported them immediately to Yellowstone National Park. And if you don't know it, Yellowstone National Park is not in any state, unlike most state mm -hmm. uh, national parks and uh, uh, refuges and that, they're all in the state. But Yellowstone was set aside before Wyoming became a state. They knew that. They brought them in there, took a lot of pictures with young girls, petting uh, puppies and all this stuff. And then next thing you know, boom, they were released into Yellowstone. Next thing you know, boom, they were out of Yellowstone. And nobody ever knew how they did it. And Congress didn't question it. And then about two years before Clinton's time was up, I found out myself and with one or two people that I kind of worked with, that they had diverted money from those excise taxes to use for an endangered species project, wolves brought in from Canada with funds that could only be used by state fish and wildlife agencies. And when they came into the United States, they didn't even make out the forms. They didn't tell where they were from. They didn't say anything about uh, shots. They didn't think, say anything about where they were going. They were the federal government. And I'm sure they all, all of the the, import, uh, the importation people that were, should have gotten those forms from them laughed and looked at the, at the wolves and blah, 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 and watched them drive off with them. So the whole thing was, was stunk from top to bottom. And this, I testified twice before Congress about it. The first time, the director didn't show up. The second time, she was told if she didn't show up, they were going to find her in contempt of Congress. So she did show up. And the place was packed with uh, reporters. And they ex we exposed all of this, where the money came from. The General Accounting Office had audited those funds and uh, verified that 45 to $60 million had been taken from the excise taxes, supposed to go to the states, and used it for this federal purpose, which was illegal against Congress. Now, I, I say that because you guys are concerned with the state, rightly so, and I agree 100% with everything you're doing and saying. Don't get me wrong. But the, the state fish and wildlife directors, all 50 of them, all 50 of them, when that became public, that their operational funding had been 
taken down that much, 45 to $60 million, not one of them would stand up and complain about that and say, mm -hmm. I want my portion of that replaced. Because by then, they were all such servants to the federal agencies. Whether we were talking here about logging, we're talking about grazing permits in the BLM or whatever, they were so in, in I don't know, so beaten down beholden. by beholden. beholden, they got they yeah. wanted that federal money that they didn't even complain about. Now that's pretty bad. And that was 20 years ago. And here I am now, we're still talking about, well, you know, if they only knew what this was doing to reproduction of the elk and the elk hunting and what we're going to, I'm not belittling it. I'm just saying, well, we talk about that stuff and zero in on those things. There's a larger thing going on, which is the federal government is sucking up authority, legal authority and jurisdiction over more species and more human activities that are associated with those species and human activities. Mm -hmm. It's going on and the UN is part of it. The CITES thing in, in they've got 41,000 listed species right now in CITES, 41,000. Think about that. And now the World Economic Forum, we see popping in there with carrying these people saying, oh, we're going to have to eat crickets and we're going to close down agriculture over here in Holland. And, and you know, it's a good stuff going on in the United States. We're good. BLM, that the, the lady director there, I guess, just came out with a proposal to lease, contra, lease land, BLM land, to NGOs. While they're closing down grazing permits, they're going to allow NGOs to lease land and do things for nature, blah, blah, blah. You know, and everybody is going to have bouquets and the wildflowers up to the buffalo's bellies. You know, it's it's crazy what's <laughs> going on. But those, that authority in that is all going up there. So it's a big problem, and it's bigger than we could work with in any state alone or even a couple of states. But it's it's something that, that if it isn't stopped, we will be eating crickets and we won't have much food. And a lot of a lot of other things. Rural America is is getting pretty badly beat up in all this. And they they're all with it. People are going to say, oh, they should know that that's going to ruin the economy here in the eastern part of our state or whatever. Then they'll say, oh, we'll do a we'll give them a welfare and blah, blah, blah. And this. But the, it's all it's all just smoke and mirrors because mm -hmm. a larger program going on here that Dan's talking about has been concerned with for a long time. The, the, the overall loss of authority and, and jurisdiction and these radical NGOs uh, agendas that are being implemented by these new employees in those agencies who no more relate to you or I than the man on the moon. They would just assume we were gone any way we could be made gone. And that's right. not over-dramatized. That's the truth. So yeah, no, Jim, that's right. And I'm going to stop you here. You need to uh, turn down your sound just a little bit. You're getting uh, kind of a static back feed. Uh, so turn it down maybe 30% or so. Um, anyway, uh, Nathan is the perfect guy to be talking with you because this is exactly what he got involved in. Uh, Nathan, through the Grass Commission, got involved with the American Prairie Reserve project in eastern Montana. And you're familiar with that. You and I uh, that's how I met you is through Bob Fanning and the fact that you had come to Montana to talk about the wolf programs and how 
you lost your job. And I, I want to, I want you to tell our listeners when you started turning evidence on the Pittman Robertson fund, uh, how your agency turned on you. I think that's an important story. Well, they, they, they threatened to transfer me to Boston, which is like the, the FBI used to send people to Montana that they didn't wanted to get rid of. That way it was yeah. a standing joke. <laughs> well, it's like that Fish and Wildlife Service in Boston. Ooh, what, there's no wildlife up there, blah, 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 and all this stuff. And I said, to what job? And they wouldn't tell me. So I knew what was up. I could have been demoted. I could have been this. But they didn't, they didn't want to involve me in any public way to talk to me with anything that could be done about it. So they they came after me. People people wouldn't wouldn't talk to me. People wouldn't ride ride on an elevator with me. One one the public affairs officer one day at a meeting in Savannah, with a whole bunch of people there, started coming down a big long escalator towards me and one of the biologists talking at the bottom of it. He saw me and turned around and started running back up the down escalator because he didn't want to be seen with me. People jumped off of elevators again because they didn't want to be seen with me. And what the Fish and Wildlife Service did was they, they started to just kind of threaten me that they were going to do away with my, my retirement. They're going to do away with my um, health care. And, you know, I better go along with this or whatever. And I wasn't going to do it. I just not going to do it. So anyway, I, we, I was home for 10 months, 10 months on no light duty, no nothing. I had to hire it's a lawyer. Administrative leave, right? What? Administrative leave. Well, yeah, that's sort of. They just told me to go home. They never told me I was on administrative leave. In fact, what they told me when I raised a fuss with them, I said, "You better not be doing this." I said, "Because you're you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble." They said that they had settled all this and they were going to assign me a new a new job in Washington, and I should call up this lawyer in the Interior Department who. I knew the guy. He was a he was a real I don't know what I mean. He was not a I wouldn't hire him as a lawyer. And he wasn't very effective, but he he done what did whatever he was told. And he I I called him and he put me on on hold for about 20 minutes. And he comes on, he said, Mr. Beers, he said, there's been some big misunderstanding here. And we're gonna take care of it here. And he says, uh, we we just I said, Well, what are you what are you talking about? Misunderstanding. He said, Well, you know about this, what they want to do with you. And I said, what they want to do with me. I said, they they have threatened me, threatened my family. I said, told people that I should be punished. That I said, people think I'm sticking up 7-Elevens or something on the side. <laughs> and I said, you're telling me that everything's going to be fine. It's not. You know that. There was a big, long pause. And he says, well, Mr. Beers, he says, you you, you just go on home. He says, and uh, we'll get back to you. He says, and, and I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll Okay, see him. Bye. Boop, he hangs up. So by then, I knew I had to get a lawyer. When I hired my lawyer, I was telling him this story. And he said, what did they say to you? And I told him. He said, oh, Mr. Beers, you got nothing to worry about. He says, I'll take care of this from now on. I said, well, what about my leave status? And he says, he says, from now on, you're working for me. And he says, I'll tell you where you can go or not go or what they can do or not do. And as of right now, you can stay home and go fishing. You do whatever you want. In fact, about three months later, of the 10 months, my daughter had just gotten a postdoctoral assignment over to the University of Ulm in Germany. My wife and I wanted to go over and visit. So I called my lawyer and I said, can I go over there? He said, yeah, sure. I said, do I have to put in for leave? No, he says, 
no, don't worry about that. So I went over to Germany. I was not only doing nothing for my salary, I was over in Germany. They, I was, I was paying for it, but I mean, mm-hmm. I was doing all of that. It was, it was all under the waves. You know, you, you don't see this stuff in the newspaper articles or anything. But finally, they came back to me after ten months and made me an offer of six figures. And for three years, when I signed it to get those six figures and retire, to sign that, I could not say or write a word, not one word about anything to do with my separation from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service of the federal government. Now, think about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. They took a six figures worth of your tax dollars that you put in there for everything from fixing the roads to what God knows what. They took that money and paid me to not say a word to any of you guys or any newspaper or anybody else about what's going on. So that none of them got fired. None of them. In fact, mm-hmm. the director went on to a big job with the uh, with Defenders of Wildlife. The guy mm-hmm. that took her, her place, who was a, a political guy, who was brought in and made director after, after uh, what's his name, uh, Bush was in there. He Bush let him go down. This, he was working, in fact, in, in, in charge of the federal aid money that was misused at the time. They sent him down and made him a special science advisor for eight years under Bush. And when Bush <laughs> was not succeeded by a Republican, the guy that uh, did come in, uh, Obama, put assigned him as the director. And he spent eight years as the director. He's the guy who 15 minutes, 15 minutes, mind you, before Trump was signed in, while they're all up there in the Congress shaking hands and all this stuff and everybody's having a good time, that director who, whose job ran out in 15 minutes when there was a, a new uh, what do you call President. it? Mm-hmm. Trump would mm-hmm. be elected. They signed a kill permit for the wind turbine people, the same ones that are killing uh, whales and porpoises now, right now off New England that are floating up on their beaches pretty regularly. The wind turbine operators could kill uh, eagles up to an unknown amount. Mm-hmm. Okay? So they were killing the birds for two decades before that, 20, all the migratory birds that use those flyways where they have the most wind all the time, migrate in that wind both ways. They were killing them by the millions, and nobody ever looked at it. This guy signed a 15, 15 minutes before he lost his job a permit to kill eagles mm-hmm. that fly into wind turbines, which is not an in, insignificant amount. While at the same time, if they catch you or me with an eagle feather in your hat or something, they're going to send you <laughs> off to prison, take pictures of you, and teach little kids about you for the next 20 years about the the raping people of wildlife, you know, mm-hmm. that's what you're dealing with with these people. It's not, it's not got to do with anything that that they say they are doing. It's all these other agendas, which ultimately are going to evacuate the rural areas and have just about everybody and everybody's activity, like you see in a socialist, even a communist country, under the control of the government, and in this case, the UN and the CITES and and mm-hmm. probably the World Economic Forum and who God knows what else, but it's, it's all a big conspiracy. <laughs> and that's it's a, not a theory. You're afraid to say it. I am afraid, which it's true. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not a theory. It's a fact. This conspiracy right. is a fact. Yeah. Uh, Nathan, I want you to uh, kind of introduce yourself to Jim by talking a little bit about how you got involved and some of the programs you've been working on with the American Prairie Reserve 
trying to work with county commissioners and things like that, because I, I think you guys uh, will become fast friends. And Jim, you're a perfect mentor uh, for Nathan. So uh, Nathan, please talk a little bit about the American Prairie Reserve. Yeah. Yeah, I talked. Uh, I don't know if Jim remembers, but I talked. To, you you gave me a contact for him four four or five years ago, and I talked with you, Jim, on the phone a couple times, I think. But um, you know, you've been around a long time and and watched this stuff internally with your capacity and and the agencies and whatnot. So I I I've been cut more of an outside looking in uh, at at the issues and studying back. Um, but, but yeah, like uh, like Dan said, and this ties into the apex predator mix too, the American Prairie Reserve in the state, who started buying up land around the CMR Wildlife Refuge in the heart of Montana, which is an already existing 1.1 million acre game reserve. Um, you know, and, and TNC, the Nature Conservancy, mapped this whole region out back then in the 1999, I think, and they realized nobody's out here, and that's a perfect place for a uh, a large, uh, reserve, um, easy target because it's sparsely populated counties surrounding an already existing U S fish and wildlife service managed reserve with a whole bunch of Bureau of land management patchwork permits and leases surrounding that reserve. So that, you know, so the nature conservancy world wildlife fund essentially spawned the American prairie reserve into the region because those two groups didn't want to come in and do it themselves uh and that's what these big ngos do is they they spawn off some other ngo to do these projects that that would otherwise potentially bring some unwanted publicity in relationship to their activities since they're uh, a lot more well known in the in the global and national community so american prairie reserve has been buying up ranches since then deeded properties uh and those deeded properties are obviously in this region connected to bureau of land management permits lands that are specifically allocated under the taylor grazing act uh for domestic livestock grazing the taylor grazing act actually requires the secretary of interior in statute to adequately safeguard those grazing privileges um hasn't been happening in, in many respects in many, many ways, but that's the statute. Uh, but American Prairie Reserve has been buying up lands, private lands connected to these Bureau of Land Management leases. Um, so it's kind of back, it's kind of, they're, they're playing this bottom up instead of the federal government coming in and arbitrarily, you know, taking lands or buying out lands with some of these funds like you guys are talking about. You have this special interest NGO that comes in that's buying up the private lands, you know, willing si seller, willing, willing buyer uh, is what they, what they claim in the process, but they enjoy a tax exempt status on huge amounts of dollars being donated from supranational billionaires out of Germany, Switzerland, um, and the Mars foundation, other, other, big donors uh, that have contributed to the American Prairie Reserve. And they use this tax exempt money to buy up these cattle ranches that are attached to these large BLM allotments. So over time, they started accumulating more land. And interestingly, 
under the existing laws, they have to sublease those BLM allotments to cattle grazing. They're not running their own cattle on those permits. They're actually subleasing that, and they're required to by law to cattle producers. Um, and so in 2017, by that point, they had acquired um, 18 deeded properties connected to uh Bureau of Land Management leases, which equal to be about 380,000 acres of land, of private combined with federal lands. And they applied to the Bureau of Land Management for the transition of the class of livestock from domestic, from cattle to bison, indigenous animals, removal of all interior fencing, and all year undeferred grazing. That was the application, and the application specifically said in 2017 to the Bureau of Land Management that as soon as we stock a single indigenous animal, remove the possibility for cattle to be a class of livestock for the permit. Um, so in a nutshell, that's kind of a little bit of background, and it came into the, this application in 2017. And that's when I, I, I'm south of the river, south of the CMR, and most of their land holdings are north. Um, but they actually ended up throwing down on the Two Crow on the south side of the CMR in Petroleum County. They bought the PN Ranch over in Fergus County, uh, over by the, the federal national monument that Obama put in place. Uh, so... So the people south of the river started uh, uh, looking at this situation as well. Um, so we we recognized immediately some significant issues with how the Bureau of Land Management, the local field office up there, was essentially streamlining and allowing this special interest NGO to fundamentally transition <laughs> the permitting processes and the purpose for which those lands have been withdrawn and set aside for the domestic livestock industry to indigenous animals and the removal of the permanent improvements required under the Stock Raising Homestead Act, the Taylor Grazing Act, the Federal Land Policy Management Act, and all this hundred years of public land laws uh, to, to develop the region for the domestic livestock industry. Um, and ironically enough, the Public Rangeland Improvement Act, one of the reasons we put stockwater reservoirs in across these lands wasn't just for stockwatering purposes. It was to reduce the siltation into the Missouri River watershed because downstream in Missouri and, and, and all those states, they have to dredge all that silt out for their shipping up and down the river. So even the infrastructure of stockwater reservoirs under the Public Rangeland Improvement Act in central Montana serve those downstream purposes of reducing siltation into the watershed, as well as also serving uh, the domestic livestock interests. And uh, the APR has come in and, and has wanted to is wanting to dismantle uh, and deconstruct all those rangeland improvements and transition. Their goal is to acquire well over 2 million acres or 1.5 million acres to marry into the CMR and, and transition into this large scale bison reserve. They have plans, you know, they're already working. They've hired a large carnivore ecologist in the last year, even though their grazing permitting processes are being appealed by our attorney general and the governor's office and other entities in the state, 
That's going through federal grazing court appeals right now. Meanwhile, they hired a large carnivore ecologist who has mapped out what they call protected corridors from the greater Yellowstone National Park and the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem and have incentive programs for ranchers and landowners to allow the dispersion of grizzly bears into the American Prairie Reserve region, which, by the way, there's only seven regions mapped out by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for grizzly bear recovery in the United States, and central and eastern Montana is not within those boundaries. (laughs) So the American Prairie Reserve, a special interest NGO, is actually facilitating with tax-exempt resources and encouraging and incentivizing the dispersal of an ESA-protected apex predator into a region that is not classified under the Endangered Species Act for recovery for the animal. So, and this is all the while while they're awaiting for, you know, the grazing appeals process and the grazing courts for their 18, well, actually it's six allotments in Phillips County that they're being appealed on because they withdrew the other applications because they got enough pressure that they decided, oh, that's a little bit too big to reach for. Um, so just like Mr. Beers was saying, I mean, this this is just a continuation of the issues that Jim was facing in the 90s with the apex predator introductions that took place in the greater Yellowstone. And you, now you have these special interest private nonprofit organizations funded by supranational billionaires that enjoy a tax-exempt status. Why in the world? Would the government give a tax-exempt status to an organization for the purpose of buying out agricultural productive private lands to phase them out of production? The whole purpose of providing a tax-exempt status to an entity is that they provide a service to the community that otherwise would have needed expenditures from the public treasury. And when these organizations remove productive use of the land, that's affecting the tax base of those local counties. Our counties depend on the taxable revenue of those industries and the productive use off those federal lands for the basic goods and services that they provide for their taxpaying constituency that lives in those borders. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why we have geopolitical boundaries called county governments inside the sovereign jurisdiction of the state of Montana. And those borders are recognized by the Montana and federal constitution. And what these landscape scale conservation initiatives do is they blur those jurisdictional boundaries. And if we allow them to accomplish these landscape scale initiatives and fundamentally change the laws that are supposed to allow access and utilization of our resources, we're gonna destroy the tax base of our rural dependent resource dependent counties and we're going to, in, in the process, destroy the ready supply of food, minerals, and fiber for the benefit of the American people in the process. Mm-hmm. And as Mr. Mr. Beers pointed out, this is ulti- that's, the, that's the agenda of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals exactly. to do away with those geopolitical subdivisions that are aggregates of sovereign power and reduce them into a incomp- uh, basically an, a, a, a position where you have no more power because you're totally dependent. Now that they've destroyed your resource industries, now you're totally dependent on these grant programs 
that Jim was talking about to be able to function for your goods and services for the community. Um, so well, it creates dependency. And, and Nathan, uh, ultimately what they plan is to get us off the landscape because part of the Agenda 21 uh, sustainability package in 2030 is to remove people from rural America and actually stack and pack us in these gigantic mega cities and reduce the landscape to what, 40% of the United States to absolute wilderness status where uh, we don't even get to travel in that area. As a matter of fact, we don't get to travel in, their ultimate goal is around 85 or 90% of our own country is off limits for average citizens. Jim, I, I want you, you worked on Agenda 21 stuff a lot. And you and I've had a lot of discussions about this. Uh, give give Nathan maybe a little of uh, of your wisdom because you can see that he's he's really uh, experiencing a lot of the things you've already been through. You know how these people think, and Nathan is running into it. And we want to reinforce him because this young man is a brilliant legal mind. I have to tell you. He knows more about the law than 90% of the lawyers out there, and he's completely homeschooled. Well, yeah, nothing nothing you said, <coughs> excuse me, surprises me. And I don't say that just to brag, but the people you're dealing with here and what they're doing, like that old joke about lawyers, how can you tell when they're a politician? <coughs> how can you tell when they're lying? Their lips are moving. They know exactly what they're doing here, and it's all part of what they want to get done. And and offsetting it is going to take movement from states to drag the authority over this stuff back. <coughs> excuse me, back down and to the state level. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we look at that and you say, "Well, wow, geez, how can we do that? We we can't." The states don't want to work together. Some states hate other states because it's like California feels about Oklahoma or something. That, <laughs> excuse me. Now, let, let me interject, and I'll, I'll give you a chance to kind of catch your breath there. But uh, most of what is, um, is happening at the state level with Nathan is that many of these agencies now are trying to interfere with his relationship uh, with many of the state agencies that he's developed a relationship with. And uh, Nathan, maybe describe a little bit how, I don't know how much you can say on air, but uh, you know, there's a lot of these groups that are coming in and they're putting words in your mouth. They're saying that you said things that you didn't say, trying to uh, disrupt your relationship with uh, various state agencies. Well, I, you know, I guess I'll put it this way: is when when you stand on the law um, and 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 legitimate authorities that are actually passed by the legislature, um, not policy manuals, not guidance documents, not memorandums, but the law. Um, 
it's difficult for the opposition to directly to use leverage the law against you because you're standing on the law. Um, and we actually have the benefit that much of the law that is in place, there's some bad laws that are out there, but a lot of the foundational uh, laws that are provide for local and state jurisdictional uh, management and decision-making as it relates to land use are in place. The problem is, is we've allowed them to go dormant in many respects, and we are not utilizing them uh, to hold our government counterparts in the federal side accountable. Um, so when you start doing that, uh, the opposition usually isn't uh, so straightforward. Um, you know, people tend to uh, come against you in ways to try to discredit you or to sever certain trust relationships that you may have developed um, by either putting words in your mouth or, um, you know, there's all sorts of mechanisms to do it. People, and whether it's agencies, bureaucrats, or politicians, and that's why I have always told people in the professional realm that I do work in and consultancy and whatnot is I will not become political. And that's what I mean by, uh, I'm not using the term political in the historical context, but the fact that um, I believe in doing pretty much everything in the open, uh, standing on the law, upholding my oath of office, and serving my constituency. Um, there's nothing for me to hide in doing that. But uh, things get political when, it, when you start going behind people's backs, you start trying to tear, tear down and sabotage people's character. Um, and that just shows when people do that and come against you in those ways, and everybody knows this, even people that aren't involved in government, this is just part and parcel of human nature. Um, when people resort to those kind of processes, it just shows that they are not standing on anything solid. And they're trying to really just reduce you to their level uh, because it's illegitimate. And, and, it's, and that's our task is to not to allow them uh, and their false accusations um, and, and bearing false witness in relationship to our service and our duty to bring us down to that level. We need to just uh, stand on the law, uphold, uphold the, our oath of office, and do our duty. And so that's what I'm trying to do, you know, and, and so, so yes, Dan, you face that office, uh, opposition in government. I faced it in the state. I faced it all through my life to one extent or another and just relationships in general. Um, but the way that we get through that is we maintain integrity, character, uh, and, and stand on those foundations. The problem is, like Psalm 11 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what what can the righteous do? So it's actually a duty for us to make sure those foundations stay in place um, so that we have something to stand on. And we provide that foundation for the next generation to stand on as well. That's what our founding fathers did in the brilliance of what they established in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence— which all, by the way, including the Montana Constitution, the Montana Constitution guarantees to the people of the state of Montana a system of self-government. Um, but back to what I was saying earlier about these landscape-scale initiatives making us dependent, self-government requires self-determination, and self-determination means that we're able to govern our own affairs without external compulsion. 
you cannot have self-government when you're dependent on outside influence to be able to function. So when we reduce ourselves as counties or individual property owners to being dependent on subsidies and grant programs through the federal bureaucracy, we are actually severing our constitutional guarantee in the Montana Constitution to self-government. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the dots we really need to start. That's what I mean by the foundations are in, are there. The laws are there. And you don't have to get very far in the Montana Constitution to see that language. I mean, we have kids right now suing the state of Montana over their right to a clean and healthful environment. And sadly, the 76 Constitution, 1976 Constitution in Montana, one of six in the nation, I think, states that have that language in it, uh, the right to a clean and healthful environment. Um, So we have the state being litigated on that. And I keep saying, well, they want to, and what they're litigating on is that the, the legislative policy for responsible development of our fossil fuel industry in the state is infringing their right to a clean and health healthful environment. And, you know, they claim, you know, a forest fire that burns through their backyard is a damage that's attributable to the fossil fuel industry. You know, those things historically in law were called acts of God, a tornado, a hurricane, natural disasters. Now we have this, these climate litigators calling what historically is considered an act of God and trying to equate that to a physical damage to somebody that can be attributed to a particular industry, in well, this they, case, our fossil fuel industry. They ought to sue themselves because the fact is most of the uh, forest fires that are going on today are a result of them going in and shutting down the logging industry and shutting down the the productive use of our forests and the necessary ground cover clearing and things that go with that. And now we've got these forests that have been completely unmanaged for 50 or 60 years, and now they're they're burning down because of all the excess fuel that's there. So they ought to be suing themselves. Uh, they ought to be going after the defenders of wildlife and the uh, DNRC and all these different uh, NGOs that have been pumping billions of dollars into shutting down so many of our industries. Well, exactly, Dan. And, you know, just a final note on that is another thing I've been saying is what about the other youth in Montana that will be robbed of their constitutional guarantee to a system of self-government if these climate litigators succeed in dismantling the material foundations that give us the leisure to be able to even enjoy a clean and healthful environment. These people, they destroy those those material. There is no clean and healthful environment or leisure to enjoy it when you reduce humanity to a position of subsistence living. Mm You take away the fossil fuel industry and cheap, affordable energy, um, that's where you are. And by the way, you see this in third world countries and countries across the world where private property is not respected and regarded and protected and private property and the means of production is not utilized for the access and utilization and development of our resources. The environment of those countries suffers and the people of those countries suffer. 
And so the counter litigation, if you if you will, is what about all the youth in the state of Montana who will be the collateral damage mm-hmm. of if these types of efforts were successful to dismantle our fossil fuel industries that provide the necessary energy to provide a baseload for our energy grid to keep the lights on, to, mm-hmm. to, to allow us to be able to travel to Yellowstone or to travel to the mountains in the western part of the state. You destroy those material foundations, um, how do you even enjoy the environment that we so take for granted mm-hmm. by being able to travel and access those things to be able to even see and have and have the leisure uh, to enjoy? Those are the dots that are not being connected by the environmental groups that are destroying these foundations. Well, and, and Nathan, quite honestly, the same people who are getting these young kids on board with this craziness uh, say openly in their own documents that they want to shut down personal travel. They want to shut down. They want to move people off the rural landscape and put them in stack and pack cities where they can control everything you do. That's the whole idea. Now they call it a 15-minute city because they want everybody working and living uh, within 15 minutes, your job's uh, 15 minutes from where you live at the most, and uh, your job or your uh, place of living is no more than 15 minutes from where you work. And a lot of these uh, housing projects, and we see 15-minute cities, literally you'll see a four-story building that the top three stories are residential and the bottom story is a business, and the people who live on the upper three floors go downstairs to work. That's what they ultimately want. And ultimately, um, I'm going to say this, most people don't believe it, the target is every human being gets no more than 180 square feet of space to live in in their stack-and-pack cities. That's the ultimate goal. Jim, I want to bring you back into the discussion. Um, you, you've seen all this stuff. Uh, you know exactly how this works. Uh, tell Nathan maybe some of your experiences in working with other countries. I know you're doing stuff in Australia. You're doing stuff around the world now uh, with other countries who have uh, sought your advice on these various things. Well, the same thing with the same people, with the same agendas and all the hidden agendas in there that we're talking about here in Montana, in the United States, the Western United States, whatever, the same ones are the ones that have got CITES protecting sharks. And when they protect sharks, people die and get hurt along beaches, and they won't let them control the number or distribution of those sharks at all. So they're getting more dense like wolves and bigger, and more, which makes them more dangerous like grizzly bears. Okay? In Africa, you've got overpopulations of elephants, and you've got big game hunting. They're gonna, they're trying to get rid of it. They're, they're shutting down any ivory trading in the, in the world from any source. Mastodons, elephants, whatever. Teeth off of, uh, off of whales. They want to take it all under their control to put you in jail if they catch you with any of it. All of that's going on, and people aren't 
really aware of it. They don't listen to it. There are people that are trying to save hunting and the animals that you can hunt in Africa are losing out big time. The, the, the natives that live near them and depend on them and try to raise their own cattle and sheep and get some reward or revenue from the uh, use of all of the animals that they're maintaining, they're shutting all that down. And it's all sanctimonious BS from people like the, the, the King of England and his, his, uh, one of his sons and that. They're all against that. They want to save the animals. And the teachers are all telling the kids what a great job that is. So what we got to do, really, I mean, I help people as much as I can with those issues and immediate things. What we've got to do is tear that authority and jurisdiction down where it's at and bring it back down. And I think of the model that, that has struck me for the last six months or a year as being what we got to go to somehow is those sheriffs in places like Milwaukee and Detroit. They get elected. They're responsible to the local people. They do what the local people want or they don't get reelected. We've got a sheriff up in northwestern Minnesota in a county where it's phenomenal predation on, on cattle and sheep by wolves. State wouldn't do anything about it for years. And that finally, the, the sheriff answered everybody's invocations and help, asked for help. And he forcibly got the state DNR to agree to let him and his deputies take care of the predation calls. <clears throat> and the amount of predation has spectacularly decreased. But you don't see anything in the papers. You don't say anything about that. We got to do the same thing, not only with with elk, and buffalo, and prairie things. We got to do it with the Forest Service and private properties' response to, to prescribed burns or fire suppression and management of the forest, wherever they are, for people for people's goals to live there and reap whatever re renewable use they can get from renewable natural resources. The same with the grazing, the same with what he's talking about, The uh, Nathan's talking about the use of uh, leases to these NGOs to supplement the already existing federal uh, ownership of land and the, the people that work there. They're all just the vast, vast majority of Forest Service, BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, EPA for sure, vast majority are committed to this stuff as much as people that hide their identity so they can go in and do the same kind of things on behalf of these NGOs. They're all mm -hmm. together. They've all got to be faced and made powerless. And that means bringing that power back down somehow back from CITES and back from the UN. And I, I'm not saying we can overthrow the world. I'm saying we can negotiate these things and do what we should have been doing for the last 30 years to do things about sharks, about grizzly bears. The, the fact that they want to, to put more of them around these prairie things isn't surprising. They also said with wolves that they only wanted 300 in the state of Montana, and then it was 600, and then it was God knows what. You know, same thing happened here in Wisconsin. They still lie about the number of animals that are out there that you're concerned with. The universities back them up because the universities are the biggest babies on the, the public uh, mammary gland of any of them. I mean, they're that's their bread and butter is grinding out information like Goebbels did for the Nazis, really. That's exactly what they do. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth. I'm not mm -hmm. saying it to be funny. I'm not saying it to be nasty. It's just the truth. 
It is. And the people that, that, the few researchers and professors that still do something, universities that would like to talk about management of these resources in a sustainable way, they, they don't get any, any press coverage. They get vilified and they get removed woke, uh, you know, objections to something they said about somebody's Tinkerbell or whatever. I mean, it's, it can be done, but I think it's got to be like an elected sheriff comes into the job here that like you take Milwaukee, Democrat run for the last hundred and some years and the, the police corrupt and the, the police chiefs is appointed by the mayor who's corrupt. Uh, this same Chicago, same in Detroit. And you get, you get these horrendous environments below them by people that you don't know that are remote and you aren't sure who did that or who said that should be done like that. You're just a victim. They can, they can switch you every way they want. And we, we've got to somehow be like those more famous ones that we've seen a lot of press coverage over the last 10, 15 years, the one in Detroit and the one in, in Milwaukee that say, look, I'm, I'm the sheriff here in this County. That's fine that the police want that. And the, and the mayor wants that, but this is what the law says. This is what I'm going to do, and I don't care what you say because I don't answer to you. It's like the the gun business when they say, "Oh, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, they all support gun control. That's the reason why you know we have tornadoes and everything else. Guns, 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 guns." Well, the truth is that those guys are all appointed by mayors who blame guns for everything. So their, their appointed police chief does the same thing. And he does it for them in the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And everybody looks at them and says, oh, what a, he's an expert. He's like Jim Beers about <laughs> wolves or something. You know, he's, we should listen to him or whatever. It's just all nonsense. But then the sheriffs will, will tell you if you go to have a cup of coffee with them, that's a bunch of BS. And you know it and I know it and whatever. But the, if you had more power in the, the sheriff's hands, and they're elected like they are, about that narrow business of law enforcement and law presence and lawlessness in a city. If we could duplicate that in, in states where we would be able to kind of nudge Republican or Democrat uh, governors to resist what the federal government wants to do, resist what BLM's doing with these uh, land purchases there and what our Constitution says, speak out. And if, that, if we had people like that in charge of our renewable natural resources, fish them game to a lot of them are real good guys at the state level, but their, their workforce is being revamped just like the federal one. Mm -hmm. But the, the appointed guys at the top, you can get a good one every once in a while because you got a Republican governor or something that appoints them. And I'm not being political when I talk about this. I'm just talking facts, okay? Mm -hmm. Most of the Democrat ones you get, are not real reliable, and I don't say that to get your vote. And most of the Republican ones are trying to scratch around and be honest and whatever, but a lot of them aren't. But be that as it may, you got to get those guys in the states to stand back up and give them the wherewithal and the information to do that. That's mm -hmm. that's where it's got to come. That you get the the, the uh, federal government back down in court in a lot of places, which we failed to do the last thirty years as we buckle like a bunch of, I don't know what, you know, as soon as they go to court with us, because they take us into the ninth district or they take us before this judge and, oh God, we're never going to win that. I mean, we're like a bunch of, I don't know what. It's just Godless gonna, wimps. 
you know, God, Godless Wimps, Jim, and uh, you're going to find Nathan to be really, really refreshing in this because uh, Nathan has been working with county commissioners uh, in the state of Montana, and through that, he's developed uh, a kind of a, I guess I would call it a support group that he's been allowed to go to the state attorney general and to the governor's office, and that's now why they're trying to cut him off at the knees by saying he said things he didn't say. They're getting NGOs to try to backstab him and do things. And Nathan, maybe talk a little bit about uh, that if you can. I don't want to put you in a spot. I just want you to let let people know just exactly how you've experienced this yourself. Well, well, I'll kind of follow up on what Jim was saying, uh, what he ended on there with the courts. And yeah, so part of the reason we lose in the courts from the conservative perspective is because we wait the we wait for the rule to go out the door and the record of decision to be put in place and then we litigate and there's a whole process that leads to that mm-hmm. of public comment etc that conservatives are not always involved in the reason the ngos and the leftist lobby succeeds in so many of their court their litig their litigation is because they're equipping the record every single time the doors open. And when you litigate on these things, what goes to the judge's desk is the administrative record. If you're not putting information into that, and the NGOs are, and they got all sorts of little groups that they equip to put comments into those records. So that's essentially what we're doing and and been a primary focus and Jim was mentioning the sheriffs. Well, it's the same thing with your county commissioners. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have an aggregate of police power as well, and actually significant amount of power in relationship to local tax base and land use. And especially if you have strong local policy in place, federal statutes require federal agencies to maintain consistency with those locally established policies and laws. The problem is some counties, for instance, have excellent policy and law in place, but it's on a shelf collecting dust. Nobody's taking that and then going to an active rulemaking process that a federal department's doing within their county and putting it into the record. So that's what that's that's been the primary work that I've been trying to do more of is helping to equip county officials. Technically, and the, see, it's not the county commissioner's fault that this is happening. They're busy with all their other responsibilities in the county on the ground. They don't have time to study and understand the National Environmental Policy Act, the CEQ regulations that implement that body of law, the Federal Land Policy Management Act, the Public Range Land Improvement Act, the Administrative Procedures Act. County commissioners aren't usually, except for some rare exceptions, uh, well-versed on how those procedures uh, unfold. When I first started meeting with county commissioners, that's one of the, on the APR issue, I went up to the Phillips County commissioners and asked them, has anybody from the Bureau of Land Management come into your office and explain the NEPA process to you and how you fit into it? And the answer was no. Mm-hmm. So I sat there for four hours with them. I, in advance, I analyzed their land use policy. 
I walked them through their policies. I walked them through the NEPA process. I explained the power they have in, in that process. And um, I would read things from their land use plan and they're like, that's in there. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's just like James Madison said, the constitution's nothing but parchment. The only thing that gives it any power is a thorough knowledge of the people. Um, so back to the litigation and going into the courts. And that's actually one of the reasons our AG's office and governor's office is litigating the APR permitting processes is because we, from the county level, have equipped the record every single time that door has been open for five years. Mm -hmm. And we, we published a extensive document outlining the history of public land laws around the domestic livestock industry in the region. And we handed that to Gianforte when he was a congressman. And then he became our governor and that document was handed over along with all the record that we equipped in the process from the county level. And now we have the full force of our governor's office and AG's office litigating those grazing permits and in, in federal grazing courts. Um, let me put it this way. Even with good leadership in the state, if we hadn't built that groundwork and equipped the record, very likely they wouldn't have taken that one because what we ended up doing in the long run is saved them and their attorneys a whole bunch of work and research and groundwork and equip the record in the process in the official process with the federal agencies, which gave them something to stand on. So that's why it's so important, as Jim was saying, uh, at your local levels, at your county level, your uh, just a really quick side note with police power. So back to the grizzly bear stuff, we submitted comments from the counties on the statewide grizzly management plan and one of the items in that uh, we made the case that the environmental species act insofar as it is pursuant to the limited and enumerated powers of the u.s constitution uh, does not supersede or impede the unenumerated reserved powers of state and local governments under the ninth and tenth amendments and, one, and that's the reservation of powers principle of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And state governments have the statutory and constitutional authority and responsibility to protect the public health and safety and welfare of their constituency. And that inherent attribute of state governmental sovereignty is shared with local governments. Even the Federal Land Policy Management Act at 43 U.S.C. 1701 G6 says that nothing in this act shall be construed as limiting or restricting the police or the power and authority of the United States or as limiting or serving as a limitation upon any state criminal statute or upon the police powers of the respective states as delegating the authority of a local police officer in the performance of his duties on the national resource lands. Mm -hmm. So what, what Jim was saying, that's encouraging to hear that's happening in Minnesota with the local sheriff handling the depredation issues of apex predators, because we, we don't have the issue here yet, but we preempted that in official comments in the statewide grizzly management plan saying, we have these reserved powers. 
And if grizzly bears are coming in and they're violating the property rights and threatening the public health interests of our taxpaying constituency, we have the power to intervene. Mm -hmm. We have the power to step in and deal with that. So, so we already from the County level in Montana and central and Eastern Montana inserted into the public record in an official comment process for the statewide grizzly management plan stated that emphatically we 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 cited the federal statutes which surprisingly enough they defer to local police power um but like i said if we don't bring those authorities forward in the in the official process we just as well not have them Mm -hmm. um so so just to parallel with with what jim was saying that's been an effort we're not so much working with our sheriffs but just with county commissioners and your local county officials. Um, and what you do in that process, you end up driving decision-making in federal rulemaking that actually represents your local taxpaying constituency rather than outside special interest groups. Because th- th- These stakeholder, you show me in the Federal Land Policy Management Act, Taylor Grazing Act, Public Rangeland Improvement Act, NEPA, you show me in federal statute stakeholder Mm-hmm. Exactly. Having any authority whatsoever to drive public land management decisions and management actions by federal departments. And yet they Local do. Local governments are not stakeholders. That's right. That's right. They, the NGOs are, are uh, driving policy that they have absolutely no statutory authority to do. And we've allowed this to happen because we've we've quietly allowed our our federal government and all these NGOs and these different agencies to put together these grant programs that have replaced what were natural resource industries. And I use this example all the time, and Jim, you know this. I've used it in a couple of my programs that I've done with you. Montana in 1960 was number five in the United States in per capita income. That was because we mined, we logged, we farmed, we ranched, we used natural resources. We were called the treasure state for a very good reason. Right now, we are number 48 or 49, depending on the year, in per capita income in the state of Montana. Why is that? We now no longer use our natural resources. Now we are a supposed um, uh, travel state, a tourist attraction. And guess what? That's a lousy source of revenue. Anyway, uh, Jim, you talk about this, you mentioned earlier about these, they're trying to get now federal law that allows uh, NGOs to come in and take over BLM lands. That's exactly what Nathan was talking about, where they're trying to get statutory authority to replace farmers and ranchers and people who have historically had access to the land and replace that with NGO access. I, I read that early this, this last week, an, an announcement by Deb Halen, the Secretary of Interior, talking about how happy she is with 
Betty Boop, whoever she is, the, the woman in charge of BLM's new proposal that's going forward to lease sections, large sections, and I don't know if they meant square mile sections or what, sections to uh, private individuals and NGOs and others for conservation purposes, and, and I forget all, was I was gonna be, you know, wildflowers and everything else in there. And it would be a place they had and that probably you or I couldn't go into even anymore. Right. And right. that's just another nail in the coffin that's going in here while they're all going hallelujah about taking care of the rural rural people and they're destroying it. And I, I couldn't agree with you guys more. I'm so delighted to listen to you talk about this local level in Montana. And I'm, I'm kind of interested, my interest lies above the state and above the federal government with the UN, oh, boy. World Economic Forum, and our federal government working with the NGOs to, to pull the strings in Washington for all this other stuff, you know, the, the burns that and how they have, how they do them in the Forest Service land, and the, the roads, closing down all the roads, what it does to fire suppression, as far as forestry matters go. Then you got the, the range matters, where they're shutting down the, uh, the, the uh, grazing permits, and they're coming up with all this other uses of federal land that they control. And then you've got the wildlife issues. I'm, you know, the pythons in Florida that should never have been allowed into the country, but were allowed in under permit. The Asian carp that have ruined the, the lower Mississippi and mm -hmm. the uh, the Missouri, the mouth of the Missouri down there, the Illinois River, cleaned out everything else in there and just turned it into a muddy cesspool. That was let, They were all let in by permits from the Fish and Wildlife Service. There's, there's all kinds of problems going on that everybody ignores. Well, we, we can cure that by giving the states back the authority and power. And I'm that's kind of what I'm trying to concentrate on. And when I say police power and I say like a sheriff, I'm thinking more in the terms of maybe take Montana. We're talking about Montana. You guys know that real well. If you divide it in half, the eastern part, you got plains and rolling hills, and some mountains there, and you got kind of different animal mix and plant mix than you got in the West with the mountains. <clears throat> if you take out the uh, the big population centers, you take out Billings, Missoula, I don't know about Butte and, and uh, Bozeman, but take them out of the vote and let the people in those two rural districts then vote for a re renewable natural resource commissioner or whatever. And that person would get part of the, the fish and wildlife people, the state guys, over under him. There would not be, well, there could be a coordinator under the governor, but the, each of them gets part of the fish and game department people, and they work for that administrator in that district. And the people that live in the urban areas, just like the ones in Chicago, shouldn't be voting on what they do in Southern Illinois, or the ones in Los Angeles and San Francisco shouldn't be setting what they do in Northern California, they're not voting for this person. And this person would have quite a bit of power to work with the, the state commissioners, the, the county commissioners like you're talking about, to, to do uh, things that the local people, what we're talking about here right now, you know, mm -hmm. we got terrible fires going through, burning down these houses, they should do this. But the, the Forest Service doesn't tell you. And while you may have a good governor now, three, four years from now, you may not have a good governor. Right. Put pressure on the Forest Service, but those commissioners 
of a district like that that are elected by the local people and are going to have a say about forest, range, and wildlife things, renewable natural resources, how they're managed and how they're used, would be strong advocates no matter who's in the governor's office within the state government. If you get a few states organized like that, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. You take and transfer those fish and game people to, to different, different districts, and they work for that elected official. And that official deals with the state legislature and the, and the governor on behalf of the rural people on these issues of renewable natural resources. I think there's some potential in there. I'm not, act, I'm not a political scientist or whatever, but I don't see any other way to beat back these the, the forces that have, are changing everything so dramatically and so quickly in ways that they feel are unchangeable and they've got to be unchangeable or like you've so eloquently described they're going to have us all in 180 feet 180 square feet eating off of a little electric tin pan that's only a, only turned on one or two hours a day so, <laughs> yeah eating bugs no less yeah. warmed up bugs uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, Jim, the, this is an important thing because it isn't a matter of uh, trying to get power back in the hands of the state. We have that power. That's the problem, is that we don't recognize the value of our Constitution of the first 10 amendments and the fact that all powers are reserved to the states or if they're not reserved to the states, they're reserved to the citizens therein. And we have allowed the federal government to take so much power that it has no right to, to have. And not only have we done that, but since we've created that monster called the UN, we now have that same kind of a problem that we passed even one layer further up. Now it's the UN. Now it's UN on top, they're trying, and the United States underneath them, and states underneath them, and it's exactly backwards from what our founder, founding fathers intended, and you're right. The, the local precinct, people don't realize the power of the counties. The powers of county government, that's why I ran uh, for, to be a county commissioner. That's the highest elected office there is in the land. And we've got to start electing intelligent, informed people to those county commission seats. They're a heck of a lot more important than Congress. Well, I think it would be good to have in that chain of command a person who's got the responsibilities and the experts within the state about the renewable natural resources, mm -hmm. about when you should be burning or not. What, what you're managing those public lands for, what's the goal there? And it would publicize it for, on behalf of the state to the governor and even tell the people, well, well we're, we're telling the governor he should do this, but he won't because they're elected. They can do that and still get reelected. And you need somebody that stands up on behalf of all of them without the, the cities. And I, it's a shame I got to use Montana cities, but it's really, I mean, when you live in a place like I do, like Minnesota or Chicago, or New York, or Pennsylvania, and you got a Detroit or a Los Angeles that's running the place because of their votes and their power and everything else, mm -hmm. then you got to somehow come up with a way to, to get the other guys 
that are living with all these natural resources in those counties, you got to get them sort of crystallized on behalf of good stuff for the people that live there and not to be just servants for the, the, the big cities that sell them away to Washington, who's selling them away to the UN and wants to give them all to Klaus Schwab or whoever that bozo is that comes in all the time and makes announcements when Carrie's in town about eating crickets and closing down <laughs> the Dutch farms. You know, I mean, really, it's the mm -hmm. truth. Well, it is the truth. And Jim, you and I had this discussion earlier because I had a an email conversation going back and forth with uh, General Michael Flynn about this. The power of the precincts, the power of local precincts in an election area and how it's so important to fill those precinct positions and uh, utilize them. Because in most of Montana, you, you don't even have uh, precinct captains or people involved in the local precincts. They, you can't get anybody to do it. They don't want anything to do with it. In Chicago and in New York, they're called ward captains. Those positions control millions and millions and millions of dollars, and they're some of the most powerful positions in every city. That's how they've managed to steal our power, is that we don't realize how important our local power is, and the people who do are in these big mega cities, and they're making a fortune off of it. That's yeah. how it worked. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Nathan, uh, you've you've heard this now. You've been working with a lot of county commissioners, and something that Jim is talking about, and it's something I wanted to bring into this discussion, is natural resource plans. Every county in the entire country, and especially in rural America, should have a county resource plan that is written and adopted, that uh, fully takes in all of the resources within that county and then puts it in a document that can be used as a foundation. You were talking about foundations. Use it as a foundation to hold state and federal government accountable to the citizens at the local level. I want to give you a, a chance to address that, please. Yeah, so, well, that's back to the local county policy I was mentioning earlier. See, and that's the difference between cooperation and coordination in federal exactly. rulemaking processes. Cooperation is you're a warm body at the table and you get a talk with the agency and give your input and they may or may not listen to you. Coordination is a government-to-government policy-to-policy process. Um, a lot of counties or people get all, oh, we need to coordinate and we need to force coordination, which I agree, mm -hmm. but if you don't have a strong policy in place, you can't coordinate strongly. Because coordination isn't you know, just sitting there at the table and talking. It's a government-to-government -government process and coordination, cooperation, cooperating agencies and federal rulemaking processes, you know, you sign MOUs with the, with the departments and you sit through the process. The good thing about a cooperating agency status is you get preliminary access to draft environmental impact statements and you sit in on the meetings and you, you actually understand kind of where the agencies are going to go. 
So there's benefits to being a cooperating agency. Uh, I'm serving as a lead contact on the Montana Grass Conservation Commission as a cooperating agency on the sage grouse amendments, the the grazing revisions that are taking place, the solar issues that are that are happening. Um, so I'm actually uh, functioning in that capacity. As Jim was saying, I am actually a commissioner on the Montana Grass Conservation Commission. Um, it's not the framework that Jim was suggesting, but we do have a somewhat of a framework for that. And our jurisdiction is, re- is in relationship to the livestock industry. Um, and we oversee the state grazing districts in the state. Montana is the only state that set up a state statutory framework for state grazing districts pursuant to the Taylor Grazing Act. And the role of the Grass Commission in the very first paragraph of Title 76 of Montana Code is to safeguard the livestock industry. And you go to the last chapter of Title 76, it says where we have all power to accomplish the purposes of this chapter. And one of, one of, the, one of the authorities we have in that as, a, as the commission is to advise county commissioners in the development of a uniform policy framework, mm-hmm. which we have never done which I am working towards trying to accomplish because we have all these frameworks in place. Some counties already have excellent policy in place in their land use policy. So I'm, I'm working as a commission on the grass commission and, and uh, trying to execute our statutorily delegated authority to advise counties with our expertise. Like Jim was saying, I don't have, we don't have the expertise in, and fire management and forest management, et cetera, and saying, do this now and do that then. But we do have expertise in the grazing administration in the state and how that happens and how that's supposed to function and the laws and the authorities that relate to it. And we have on the ground expertise because in order to be a commit, a, a director on the grass commission, you have to be a stockman. You cannot be appointed it's a governor appointed position, but the requirement in law is you have to be a stockman and you have to hold grazing permits. So that weeds out a huge amount of other, other influences to, from being able to sit on that commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and they set it up that way on purpose because who, who better to have represent the livestock industry in the state of Montana than the people who are in it. Producers, yeah. People who are actually on the ground have grazing permits. And I'm I'm a livestock producer. We run it, we raise registered feeder calves. I have BLM permits and I function within the Winnet Grazing District. When I pay my leases to be my permit to be I don't write the check to BLM. It goes to the state grazing district. Mm-hmm. So we have a very strong framework of even the way the cash flows in the state. <laughs> for our grazing administration on federal lands and the grass commission of which I'm a director on has oversight over all of that. And we have all power under title 76 to accomplish the purposes of that chapter. Um, the problem is, is that board has for years never really exercised and utilized those authorities. So what Jim is saying, I totally agree with what Jim's saying to set up these commission type uh, frameworks. Some states already have them, kind of like what I'm talking about with the Montana Grass Conservation Commission um, in the state of Montana. So, so we're trying to better serve our taxpaying constituency and our permittees in the livestock industry in the state 
and back to what you wanted me to talk about, Dan, is the the land use policy side of this, mm-hmm. your natural resource policy. Um, that's your coordination framework. Exactly. That is a very powerful framework. Like, like we we're saying, the BLM, this conservation leasing rule that's happening, I'm developing comments on that right now and working that issue. I tell you what, we would be much better positioned to be engaging on that issue if we had that framework already in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we're sitting pretty well anyways, just by the laws and the policies we do have in place. Um, but uh, so it's very important to have that natural resource policy at the local level because federal statutes in NEPA, the Federal Land Policy Management Act, and a whole bunch of other authorities require federal departments to maintain consistency with those locally established policies. And that's a coordination tool for local governments to leverage and federal rulemaking processes uh, that represents their local constituency and protects the the industries that those counties depend on because the counties have a direct nexus on their, on their taxing authority because every cow in the County is taxed. Uh, every, the, the taxable revenue through the Bankhead Jones act and the Bankhead Jones lands, 25% of the use of Bankhead Jones act lands is redistributed to County governments for schools and the maintenance of County roads. Right. So if they get this conservation leasing rule through and some NGO or private entity wants to apply for a non-use permit, there goes that 25% revenue exactly. that would be redistributed back to the county for those purposes. So in my opinion, this leasing rule already cannot be applied to 135 million acres of lands that are already reserved in Taylor Grazing Act districts or on Bankhead Jones Act lands because a huge per- there's percentages of those revenues that come back to the local jurisdictions that serve to provide essential goods and services for those local people. But so I, the- I, I can guarantee you, Nathan, and I'm not trying to interrupt, but I can guarantee you that if people like you that are aware of this and actually speak out, don't speak out, they're just going to do it by default. They're going to get away with something just like you're talking about. Your people in your own organization, many of them don't realize the power that you have. And that's exactly how they accomplish this. Now, you use something, this natural resource plan, you have to have it to coordinate. It's like sitting down across the table with somebody and trying to negotiate how uh, uh, negotiate how to build a car, and you have no instructions on how to do it yourself. In other words, the guy with the book is the one that's going to win the battle. And if you don't have your own natural resource plan in place, they're going to use their book and you're going to lose. It's that simple. That's why coordination needs a natural resource plan. Yeah. Well, absolutely, Dan. And so just really quick, and then I'll pass pass this back over to Jim. I'll, I'll summarize with something that ties in the bigger picture uh, with this conservation leasing rule, um, which would allow which would basically place conservation permits or leases, which is a non-use lease, 
on par with livestock grazing permits and oil and gas and mineral permits. Um, so in the nineties and Jim, Jim knows this probably better than me cause he was in the bureaucracy at when this was all happening. What started in the federal government in the nineties after the biodiversity convention at the summit at Rio de Janeiro in 1992, Clinton tried to get Senate ratification of that convention, but the Senate, uh, refused to advise or ratify that convention. So interestingly enough, and I'm going to just lead through this to show how this has led to this conservation rule. Subsequently, the environmental community has failed to adequately demonstrate that such commitments to biodiversity conservation is anything more than mere rhetoric. And that's evidenced by the fact that Congress over the last 25 plus years has not enacted any laws which authorize, let alone require, far-reaching biodiversity conservation measures. So as a result, environmental advocates have called for an ever-increasing role of the executive bureaucracy to implement biodiversity conservation initiatives through discretionary measures, which is straying farther and farther away from clearly delegated authorities. And because land use under existing authority statutorily and traditionally in our governmental system in this country has always been considered a matter of state and local concern an ever expanding top-down executive branch role in this field poses pretty serious federalism concerns and currently uh, the expansive federal biodiversity <laughs> policy is usurping article one legislative powers to the executive branch and illegitimately challenge, challenging the longstanding federalist structure of our government. So the interesting thing here is, so you have the Biodiversity Conver Convention in de Janeiro, 92. So in the thousands, now you have the Paris Accord. Mm -hmm. And since the inception of the Paris Accord, now the executive branch is attempting to establish a natural asset class for land, water, and air resources by attaching a synthetic market value to these biodiversity goals and associated decarbonization objectives. And because there's no current free market process establishing a metric for economic calculation for this novel market, any values that they place on these natural assets for non-use is arbitrary exactly so this current rule that is being pushed through bureau of land management by tracy stone manning seeks to take this non-use to the level of productive use and establish an administrative mechanism in order to facilitate artificial avenues for private investments into natural resource lands without extractive material products to attach a value to. So this will provide an illusion of private market value for the application of non-use of lands, which then will be sold and marketed into the international finance realm with no calculable, calculable benefits to local governments and citizens. In fact, this process will invert the productive use of lands which provides economic calculation for taxable revenue 
of the material products of local governments as a basis to provide goods and services based on the principles of multiple use and sustained yield. And in stark contrast, the the conservation leasing health rule would make non-use a competing force against actual use, allowing government regulators to set prices with special interest third parties. And so with that said, this is a very dangerous trajectory very this dangerous. is going. And there are direct links between this conservation leasing rule and the inception of this natural asset class that's being developed developed in the international finance community and through the White House. It is a very dangerous direction, and everybody should be concerned Absolutely. about what's, what's happening with this. Well, and it, it ties in again, what you were talking about, it ties in again with the intentional uh, sequestration of our use to our land. They are doing this very intentionally, and they're doing it in a way that they can quantify and they can bank, and it's called carbon credits that they're planning on using as the new banking system. Now, a lot of people don't know that, but that is exactly how they are going to completely control society is by creating a carbon credit system that's directly tied to the CBDC, to the central bank digital currency, to the cashless society. And this is a way that they can take people like you and like me that don't play the game and get us off of the landscape and uh, quantify the people who will play the game. They're the ones that will ultimately end up with the the carbon credits going to their accounts. Jim, uh, you've seen a lot of this stuff, and you know how this works. Uh, you know, uh, what, do you, what do you think of what Nathan just pointed out? Well, all I can say is amen. <clears throat> I wasn't aware of all of it in the way that he presented it, and I, I compliment him on his ability to weed that out and explain it to the rest of us. Thanks very much for that. I might, I might mention one thing. I'd give some thought to here. <clears throat> For about 20 years, I have not been a fan of the way United States senators are elected. United States senators are going to ratify treaties, and they're going to ratify this kind of stuff going on right now with the UN and CITES and all the conventions, and the president's got to sign something, and the Senate's got to approve it and legitimize it. That's an awesome power. Up till the time of the First World War under Woodrow Wilson, it's time. Exactly. Senators were elected by the Congress of the state, the state right. legislature. They appointed the guy or mm -hmm. gal. And mm -hmm. that was that. But when they went to a popular election, everybody, oh, that's wonderful. Hey, oh, we all get to vote for him. He became nothing but a glorified over here, the, the, the organization for more whatever over here. And he gets elected or she gets re-elected, re-elected, no matter what's going on. And if they pay him enough monies or they're beholden enough to some foreign power or something else, you don't have anything. But when they answer to the legislature, you may not like it. And I don't like my legislature in Minnesota, and it wouldn't change anything here. But 
if the election, if the if the legislature uh, elects them, that's really the voice of the people at that time, and they can be recalled or elected. Somebody else can get elected. None of this stuff. They go in there, you know, rosy cheeked little young guys with their hair cut and leave their old gray men that are worth thirty gazillion dollars or something and go over to Ireland and build a castle and live in it. That that's a weakness we've got when it comes to these issues that he was talking about here with treaties and conventions and agreements that the senators have a lot to say about that. And we need better senators than we've got. We do. We do. And now you're talking the 17th Amendment. Yep. And uh, what a travesty, because I don't think it was ever uh, actually ratified. No. Uh, there's quite a bit of evidence that uh, it was never clearly ratified by the states, and uh, it's an illegal amendment that got passed, uh, and it, it should never been there in the first place. But I, I don't know if you know this, Jim. Montana was the state that they used as the as the whipping boy to get the 17th Amendment through, and that's because one of our robber barons bought the Montana legislature. Uh, he was the, one of the Copper Kings, bought the Montana legislature and got appointed to the U.S. Senate uh, and was one of the crookedest guys that ever lived. And because of that, they used they they used him as the whipping boy for passing the Seventeenth Amendment. So oh. it, all, it all happens in Montana. <laughs> oh. Anyway, uh, Nathan, you you know, and I mentioned this to Jim. First of all, I'm going to pass both of your information back and forth because you really need to be using each other as resources. Uh, because of, you know, Jim is an incredible mentor because he's been there, he's done that. Uh, he's seen the federal government at the at the absolute top of the heap, and he's had to experience, uh, you know, the, the awfulness of being controlled in a system like that. On the other hand, I Jim, I think uh, Nathan is clearly one of the sharpest young minds in this country, and his grasp of the law and his ability to filter through uh, all of these uh, administrative agency regulations and all this stuff and, and uh, make good uh, statutory examples of overreach, uh, he, he's better at it than any young man I've ever met. And uh, Nathan's, Nathan, you're what, 31 years old? 32. 32. Boy, I wished I had a mind like that when I was 32. Uh, I could have been a real kick-ass, uh, good local person legislator. So anyway, uh, Nathan, um, you know, you're, you're, you know what they're going to do with this and how they're going to move this forward. You're working with, and I would like you to share with Jim, uh, the document that you're putting together because you're trying to get state attorneys general all over the country to um, to sue the federal government to sue to block uh, the governor's 
in the various states from doing some of the things that they've gotten away with doing. And uh, please explain a little bit of that to Jim, and then I hope you'll share uh, your document with him because uh, he's a great writer. Jim's a good, good writer, and I think you would uh, uh, probably benefit from having him on your list of mentors to uh, maybe go through and review your writing. Yeah, well, and coming up, Dan, we'll have to have a program just on this document. Um, but just in it, there's a lot there, just in a nutshell, though. So since Biden, since Biden came into office, I took it upon myself to track two particular executive orders, the 1408 and the 13990. And 1408 is the order that rejoined the Paris Accord, directed agency heads to establish the nationally determined contribution for decarbonization, established uh, climate action plans, department-wide climate action plans. Um, and by the way, these are conservation leasing rules, the sage-grouse amendments, all these major federal rules, most of them anyway, coming through Department of Interior, are citing these climate action plans as a preliminary need for these rules. So you can trace it all back to Paris. So the title of the document is All Roads Lead to Paris. <laughs> um, and that's not just a clever play on words. That's it's a reality yeah. in relationship to um, what is happening in the administrative state and how it ties back to the Paris Accord, kind of like what I just described earlier with the conservation leasing rule. So one element of this document isn't just the federal government that's off key. When Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord in 2017, California, New York, and Washington governors formed a coalition of state governors to uphold those international compacts. States are prohibited in Article 1, Section 10 from entering into any form of international obligations, agreements, etc. Mm -hmm. We have Article 1. Now there's 24 state governors that make up this coalition. And that those the, the that coalition controls 60% of the gross domestic product of this country. And some of these governors are going over to these international conventions and saying they're going to use 60% of their gross domestic product to transition the entire North American economy. So I've been building a, lit a litigation, a case uh, for injunctive relief and, and maybe some other things uh, in relationship to these governors violating Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution to accomplish these international compacts and agreements. Um, so, and there's several other line items in that document. Essentially what I did in the document is I tracked, um, it's kind of a chronology of how those executive orders are being implemented in the executive departments and how the states are paralleling because now this coalition of state governors are partnered with the federal government on these initiatives. It's these coalition states that are now inequitable beneficiaries of the Inflation Reduction Act and the Build Back Better Act resources that are being ear-tagged for the green transition. Mm -hmm. Rudy, what states do you think are the, are the biggest beneficiary of those dollars? Mm -hmm. These coalition states are also committed to these international compacts. So the Congress needs to get involved in this, too, because they're the ones signing the damn check that's funding this. Meanwhile, they're penalizing Montana and other states 
by prohibiting them from being able to access and their oil and gas leases on public lands. Right. So, but anyways, I could go on and on and on and on. I'll leave it at that, but that's one element that, uh, that I've been tracking and studying and building information on and writing to, uh, because we're not connecting the dots in relationship to the policies coming through the rulemaking processes in these departments and these international commitments that they're ultimately uh, trying to meet those objectives. Mm -hmm. So it's a big issue. It is a huge issue. And Jim, uh, that document, it's uh, Nathan, it's what, 45 page document. And it clearly delineates, you know, the, the various steps. I mean, it's very well written. I, I'm uh, incredibly impressed with this. And what Nathan has done is he's tried to prepare this document so that when he presents it to state attorney generals all over the country, that they have the framework, they have the basic uh I guess the basic information to build their case. And he's trying to get uh, attorneys general all over the country, at least in the 26 states that aren't part and parcel of the 24 that are trying to to ruin our country. He's trying to get them on board with the idea so that uh, we can start fighting this. Well, I've learned a lot and I appreciate what Nathan's doing, and <clears throat> I do whatever I can <clears throat> to help him. And I think you're doing a great job, Dan, putting this stuff in the public ear and before their eyeballs. I mm-hmm. think uh, we owe you a lot, a lot of gratitude for that. Well, I mean, it, 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 to me, it's just a perfect uh, example of how we have allowed by our non-participation, our non-performance, we've allowed the the whole country to be taken over by internationalists by globalists right. yep. and uh, and how antithetical that is to our own self interest and Nathan is exactly the kind of young man that we need to be supporting and and getting behind the kind of programs he's putting together see somebody thirty two years old all I can say is that. Uh, um, you know, these are the leaders of our future, and we've got to do whatever we can to help him along his journey. And that's why I want to kind of connect us. Well, thanks a lot for doing it. You're doing a good job. Well, I'm trying. I'm okay. trying. Nathan, uh, I know you were planning on being on here the whole time because you're working on some documents to try to uh, – uh, get this information out as best as you can at state level. Uh, maybe very quickly, talk to our listeners, tell them how they can support you. Well, uh, that'll be a follow-up, Dan, with you probably on another program. But uh, I am. it's tough because I'm so busy working on the actual processes that I don't get time to develop the frameworks for support. <laughs> so, uh, but I am creating a framework, uh, 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 private membership association. I kind of, I'm treating it like a missionary that's the kind of, that goes to a church and, you know, I'm going to go to Zimbabwe and spread the gospel. And if you're not going to shoot, carry bullets, you know, but my mission's into the civil sphere. So I'm creating a private membership association that will allow 
a membership organization of ranchers, farmers, property rights interests to be a member of that association and financially support uh, the work that I do and in that mission. And the mission is, is to connect them to their elected representatives as county officials and our representatives, the legislators, to represent our property rights interests on the ground. Um, so I am try building that framework. It's not there yet. It's, it is coming together. I'll be within the next month and two months. Uh, all of that's going to be online, and I'll have an opportunity to, to make that available for people that, that may be willing to, to serve and, and have a support system. And my goal, too, is, is not just to have people support me. I want to serve those people and, and help equip them to, to be more impactful in their sphere of influence and give them the resources they need to do that. Um, so follow-up conversation on that, another program. Hopefully I'll have uh, some, some connections, links, and, and addresses for anybody that would want to be involved in that. Well, it's important that we support you. And I can make this statement because for years I've been trying to do what I'm doing, and it's very difficult. I've got a handful of people that are wonderful supporters, but on the other hand, uh, the lion's share of the people don't even want to participate in any way, and it costs money to do what you're doing. You're spending your time that you could be making a living uh, out doing things for the people of our country, and we need to appreciate that. And so I'm just going to make that comment. You need to support young men like Nathan in any way you can, because he's the future of this country. If we've got a chance at all, it's going to be with young people like you. Thank you so much for being our guest, Nathan. You know, I support you in every way I can. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. And like Jim said, appreciate the, everything you do. And Jim, uh, appreciate being on the air with you. I, told Dan I'd probably be on for the first half hour. And then he said, you're coming on with me. And I was like, well, that'll, that'll probably be a good enough conversation. We'll last through the whole thing. So, yeah, exactly. so regards. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you, Nathan. I uh, thank our viewers and our listeners. Join us again next Sunday for connecting the dots and don't miss our show. We're going to be doing on Tuesday morning. Join us for Connecting the Dots. I've got Harry Buyens from South Africa is going to be our guest, and we're going to be talking about what's going on internationally. Uh, Jim, you mentioned the Dutch farmers. They're mm -hmm. killing the boars. The highest death rate in the world as a profession is being a boar farmer in South Africa right now. Yeah. We're going to talk about that on Tuesday. Uh, pamphlet, I see you're ready to go with uh, the campaign show. So with that said, gentlemen, thank you so much for being part of this. And I think we did a great thing in informing a lot of people. Join us again. Thank you. From the lakes of Minnesota Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, New York to L.A., where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say.
Cause there ain't no doubt 